Max Melitzer had spent almost three decades living rough in Salt Lake City, pushing all his belongings in a dilapidated shopping trolley. But now Max is finally off the streets after a private investigator told him he had inherited his brother's entire estate. It took his cousin Richard Goldfarb more than a year to find Max, finally fulfilling his brother's deathbed request. The down and out was left in shock when private investigator David Lundberg told him he stands to inherit just over $100,000 from his brother Morris, whom he hadn't seen in 15 years. So here we have a case of uh, Max Melitzer. He was a homeless person. But uh, his brother, though he hasn't seen for 15 years, uh, still loved him and uh, left him all his money. And when finally uh, the cousin, the executor of the estate, was able to find Max, he gave him uh, upward of $100,000. Now, I don't know exactly how the transaction took place, but uh, let's imagine for uh, the sake of the story that he handed him a check. Here is a check for $100,000 plus. And uh, Max at first rejoiced in having this check. Uh, $100,000 would make me very happy. And I imagine for a homeless person even more so. Uh, but let's imagine that uh, his friends, other homeless persons, would tell Max, Max, you don't imagine that you can just walk into the bank and hand them this check and that they'll give you $100,000. You have to clean up first. Clean up your act. Change your clothes. Uh, go to a detox program. Uh, possibly finish your uh, college degree and get a job, a place to live. And then you could walk into that bank with your head high, hand them the check, and you'll get your $100,000. Is that true? Does Max have to do all these things before he deposits his check? No. The only thing the bank cares about is uh, who wrote the check and uh, whether it is their signature and whether they have $100,000 in their bank account. And they will happily give Max his $100,000 plus. The same is true uh, for us, uh, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, uh, Paul came to Galatia and he told them that the Lord Jesus Christ died for their sins to save them. And all they had to do was, was believe God. Take him to the bank, so to speak. And all their sins will be forgiven and they will have a home in heaven. But... Uh, Teachers of another gospel came to Galatia after Paul, and they said, uh, do you think you could just go up to God and uh, tell him that because Jesus died for your sins, you're going to have a place in heaven? If you do, uh, you're sorely mistaken. You have to clean up first. You have to be circumcised. You have to uh, keep the law of Moses. Uh, if you want God to accept what Jesus did for you. And uh, what uh, Paul is doing in the letter to the Galatians is trying to convince the Galatians, assure the Galatians, that what the false teachers were saying is not true. Uh, all they need is the Lord Jesus and what the Lord Jesus did for them. They don't have to somehow first clean up their act. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law. Uh, the check is good. God's offer of salvation is good. They just need to trust Christ for what Christ has done for them. And uh, they will receive the gift of salvation. 
So with that, uh, let's go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 2. Just in way of review here, Paul has already uh, proved a number of points or shared a number of points to try to convince the Galatians that this is a bona fide offer of salvation. It's an offer that's coming from God. It's not Paul that came up with it. Uh, he shared with them in chapter 1 about his experience. He was a persecutor of the church himself, but God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, revealed himself to Paul in a vision, or directly, uh, from heaven. Uh, he turned Paul's life around. Paul headed out to the desert, and he went back to Damascus, preaching the gospel without any of the apostles teaching Paul what the gospel of Christ was. He was already preaching the gospel. Why? Because God has directly revealed it to Paul. Then a question came up. Uh, we looked at it last week of uh, the gospel. Some people were challenging Paul that he was not teaching the true gospel of Christ. And so Paul went to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles and the apostle gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and said, yes, what Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Gentiles is true. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And so uh, Paul, in today's passage, will share about his uh, exchange with uh, the apostle Peter. And the main point will be that uh, when it comes to uh, the gospel, Paul was willing to challenge even the apostle Peter. Right? He had just one more evidence that the gospel that Paul was preaching was the gospel of God. This is a message that came from God. It wasn't a message that was in any way inferior to that of the other apostles, and therefore it's a message we could put our faith in. Okay, so let's read verse 11 through verse 13 to start with. And then we'll read the rest of the passage <coughs> later on. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Who is the Apostle Peter? The Apostle Peter was a recognized leader of the church. His home base was in Jerusalem. And we're told here that he came up to Antioch. Where is Antioch? Antioch is uh, the yellow circle above Jerusalem, so all the way up in Syria, a few hundred miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, Matt pointed out to us uh, last week that uh, Antioch was uh, a flourishing church. It was perhaps uh, the first church established in a mostly Gentile city, and so it had a large number of Gentiles. But they had excellent teachers, including the Apostle Paul, and they became a sending church. From there, the gospel was sent out to uh, Greece and other parts uh, of the Gentile world. And it was from there Paul himself was sent to Galatia. That's the larger circle I have. And after Paul preached in Galatia, he came back to Antioch. That's where he first ran into the issue with his uh, false teachers teaching uh, that you have to become a Jew in order for Christ to benefit you. He went all the way back to Jerusalem. He got confirmation from the uh, apostles there that his gospel was the true one. He, he knew it was the true one, but he needed uh, their signature to convince the rest of the people in Antioch. So he came back to Antioch and, uh, and shared the good news. This is still the true gospel. The apostles are supporting it. And then Peter himself follows up at some point and comes himself uh, to Antioch. Why did Peter come to Antioch? Uh, to encourage the faith of the believers. Uh, just imagine that I was to invite you to uh, lunch at my house after 
the um, service, and you'd say, oh, well, thank you for inviting us. Who else will be, will be coming? And I would say, well, the Apostle Peter will be there. Wow, how exciting. You'll get a first-hand account of, uh, of the life of Christ. You could ask Peter all the questions uh, about the missing portions uh, in the gospel that you, you're curious about what happened. And he, he could fill in all the details. He can tell you what it was that happened, how, how edifying that would be to your faith to, to, uh, to hear all these things. Now, I cannot make that offer. The apostle uh, Peter was uh, crucified upside down uh, almost 2,000 years ago, and uh, he's not back yet. Uh, but, uh, but at that time, this was a real scenario. After service, uh, one of the believers could invite the Apostle Peter and a good portion of the church along to their house, and everybody could hear the Apostle Peter share and be encouraged in their faith. Maybe some who have never trusted Christ yet would put their faith in Christ after hearing the first-hand account of the Apostle Peter. Wow, what a blessing to the church in Antioch to have the Apostle Peter visiting. But uh, then uh, the problem comes. It says in verse 12, uh, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But one, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. What went wrong? Well, more people came from Jerusalem. We're told here that they, uh, they came from James. James was the brother of the Lord Jesus. He was also one of the church leaders in Jerusalem. We don't know uh, that, uh, that James would have any objection to what Peter was doing. In fact, James was one of the apostles that supported Paul in the conference at, uh, at Jerusalem and said, yes, this is the true gospel, salvation by faith, without keeping the law. Uh, but it's possible that um, James had some association with people who haven't yet come to that conviction. Or it's possible that these men themselves don't have uh, issues with this doctrine, but when they would go back to Jerusalem, they might happen to talk and tell everybody what Peter was doing. And uh, Peter, we're told here, is fearing those who were of the circumcision. Who are those who were of the circumcision? Those are those who, uh, while professing to have faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, believe that Gentiles must become circumcised and keep the law in order to benefit from the cross of the Lord Jesus. And uh, it might seem, well, why is Peter so fearful of them? What's wrong with, uh, with uh, having uh, eating, having fellowship with the Gentiles? Well, Peter himself uh, told that to, uh, to uh, Cornelius, if you remember. Peter is the first apostle to go and preach the gospel to uh, Gentiles. Uh, he received an invitation from Cornelius, who was a centurion. Cornelius had a vision, and uh, in the vision he was told to summon Peter, and Peter was going to share with him the gospel. And so Peter goes, and be but before Peter enters the house, or as he enters the house, he said this to Cornelius and everybody who was gathered there, there Acts 10, 28. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Peter knew as he was stepping into that house that he was going to be violating the law as the Jews of his time understood it, which was not to go into the house of a Gentile, that that would somehow make him unclean. Now, uh, why does, where did that law come from? There is no law in the Old Testament that says a Jew cannot eat with a Gentile, 
But there are certain laws designed to restrict the, the interaction. For example, a Jew wasn't supposed to marry a Gentile. Uh, Jews were not supposed to enter pagan temples and worship in Gentile uh, feasts or idolatrous feasts. Uh, now, we would understand that as God trying to keep Israel faithful to himself and separated from the nations around him that were worshiping idols. And uh, it's possible that an extension was made, perhaps by the Pharisees, to say, you know what, to be really careful, let's just have a very clear rule. We never eat with Gentiles at any time for any reason. Now, that's really adding to the law. It wasn't part of the law of God. It was really just their interpretation or application of it. But still, it was what Peter was raised with. And he's willing to violate that law because God clearly revealed to him that he must not call anyone unclean at this point. There was a new law. The Lord Jesus revealed to Peter in a dream that it's okay for him to go into fellowship with Gentiles and to share the gospel with them. How else would the 12 apostles be able to reach a world of Gentiles with the gospel if they were unwilling to eat with or enter the house of a Gentile person? The gospel would have ended in the nation of Israel. It would not have made it out into the rest of the world. So there is a change that's being brought about, directed by the Lord Jesus. You must not call anyone unclean. Everyone is a person you can now go into, share the gospel with, have fellowship with, for the purpose of reaching them with the gospel. The, the law uh, forbidding a believer to marry an unbeliever is still there. The law of not joining in idolatrous feasts are still there, but you are uh, welcome to enter into the house of an unbeliever, have a meal with an unbeliever, share the gospel, have fellowship with an unbeliever. Right? There's no prohibition of that now, but before that point, at least in the mind of Peter and of the Jews, there was a prohibition. Just a couple of other verses to show how serious this was and maybe explaining why Peter had such a fear of news getting back to Jerusalem that he was having fellowship with the Gentiles. In Acts 11, as Peter returns after having such a successful meeting with Cornelius and his family, remember they all get saved, uh, they receive the Holy Spirit, uh, there, there's joy in the presence of the angel, and yet when Peter makes it back to Jerusalem, he is being <coughs> practically assaulted. Acts chapter 11, in verse 1, now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Right? I mean, Peter is obeying God. He is sharing the gospel. People are getting saved and he's in trouble. Right? With professing believers. Now, to, uh, to up the ante a little bit, here is an account of the Apostle Paul when he tried sharing his testimony with the Jews. Now, granted, these are not professing believers. These are just the Jews in general. But this is still the crowd that Peter will be going back home to in Jerusalem. So here's Paul sharing with them. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. Paul is sharing an experience after he came uh, from, uh, from uh, Syria, from Damascus to Jerusalem. He had a heart to share the gospel with his fellow Jews. Some of the ones who perhaps used to persecute uh, the church with him, he now wants to share his faith with them. So he's in Jerusalem, he's praying in the temple, and then he has a vision. He sees, uh, verse 18, And I saw him, that is, the Lord Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen 
was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So up to this point, the Jews are listening to Paul sharing his testimony, including this vision that he has. But when he says that one would, the Gentiles, the fact that Jesus was telling him that he would send him, Paul, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Why is he not fit to live? Because he is suggesting that the Gentiles can be right with God by believing the gospel. Right? That's reason enough for the crowd to want to kill Paul. So, Little wonder that Peter is a little bit concerned, right, about the fact that he is there with the Gentiles, sharing with them, eating with them, having fellowship with them. And when these guys show up from Jerusalem, Peter is concerned. And he uh, makes a, a mistake because of his fear. The Bible says that, uh, that uh, I'm sorry, I should have written down the verse, but uh, fear is a snare, right? Uh, when we're afraid, the fear of men is a snare. We don't want to be afraid of men. But Peter was, and out of his fear, he makes a decision to separate himself from the Gentiles. He will no longer uh, have uh, meals with the Gentiles. He will no longer have fellowship at the houses of Gentiles. I would have to uh, call you as you were driving home after the meet to my house after the meeting for fellowship, and I would have to say, I'm sorry, the apostle Peter canceled. He's not going to be here today. And uh, you'd say, why? Why? I said, well, because we're Gentiles. He's not, he's not going to have fellowship with us because we're Gentiles. Right? Um, I asked you um, in the homework assignment, if you uh, got a copy of it, uh, what, what is it that Peter do wrong? Can you point out all the all the ways in which Peter, Peter action was a wrong action, um, was the wrong thing to do. I don't know if anybody had a chance to do the homework and wants to share any, any, anything they found to fault Peter with. All right, so next week everybody is going to do their homework, right? Okay, I, I had here a list, uh, one. Uh, he was robbing the Gentiles of his ministry. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Here was an excellent feeding opportunity for the Apostle Peter to feed the Gentiles with the word of God. And he's failing to do it. I uh, was thinking about uh, the Lord Jesus' final command to his disciples. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as uh, I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Uh, the love that should be existing between the saints is the strongest testimony that we are true followers of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus loved us. He was willing to go down, come down from heaven to have fellowship with sinners for, uh, for Jews Jewish brothers to refuse to have fellowship with uh, Gentile brothers is not showing the love of Christ. It takes away from the testimony of Christ and therefore of the church. Peter was practicing hypocrisy. Paul says that uh, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is pretending to be something you're not. Peter was pretending to be a law-abiding Jew. He was not a law-abiding Jew, as Paul will point out. Right? He was a God-fearing Jew. He was a believer in the Lord Jesus. He wanted to follow the Lord Jesus. Um, but he has given up on the attempt of trying to satisfy all of the Jewish laws because he realized they have become inconsistent 
with the teaching of Christ, and he was going to follow Christ. But at this particular juncture, he is pretending to be a law-abiding Jew, and that was a lie. Hypocrisy is one of the sins that Jesus condemned the, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, for. Uh, fourth, he was leading others into the same sin. Peter was a leader, and where Peter went, others would follow. And in this case, Peter was leading other people into sin. They also uh, pretended to be something that they were not. They contributed to the split between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, destroying the evidence of the church and of the love of Christ. And the fifth one, which really was Paul's main concern here, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, his behavior was suggesting that um, the gospel that Paul was preaching was not true, that it wasn't enough to believe in Jesus. He also needed to become a Jew, right? That's what his behavior was suggesting. The fact he wouldn't have fellowship with you unless you were a Jew would certainly make you question if believing in Jesus was quite enough or whether you had to become a Jew as well as the false teachers were teaching. So in all these ways, Peter erred, but Paul will see, really will focus on the last point because the gospel was of such a concern to Paul. How is it that we are saved? Is it enough to believe in Jesus? Did Jesus do enough for you on the cross or do you also need to become a Jew in order to be saved? So with that, we'll turn to the second half of the passage. Galatians chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. But when I saw, this is Paul speaking, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. We'll break it down into three portions. First, Paul is rebuking Peter for his hypocrisy. Peter didn't try to follow the Jewish law. He was a Jew, but he lived in the manner of Gentiles. Why are you asking other people to do something you don't? Right? There's a problem. Clearly, Peter, you're not being consistent here. Then he explains why Peter and himself and other Jewish believers did not attempt to keep the law. He said, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The Jews themselves had every reason to trust in the law, if anybody had. They were taught the law from their youth. They had generations before them, uh, people who tried to keep the law and interpreted the law. God gave them every reason to keep the law. They would have all of God's blessings if they kept the law, and they would be judged by God if they failed to keep the law. And yet the Jews themselves were not able to keep the law. Peter says the same 
in his defense of Paul in the council in Jerusalem, which happened uh, before this time, Peter said to the Judaizers at the time, or to those who wanted Gentiles to become Jews, he said to them, now therefore why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. The truth is the Jews were never able to bear the law of God. They could never live by the law of God because God's law is perfect and we are sinners. God gave us his law to help us see our need for salvation as we'll talk about a little bit later also. He didn't give us the law as a means of becoming right with him, but to show us that we were wrong with God. We were not right with God. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What was it that Peter was trusting in? What was it that the Jewish believers were trusting in? They were trusting in the Lord Jesus to save them from their sins. So, why, Peter, would you suggest that the Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved? He did not do it intentionally. It wasn't his intention to teach them otherwise. But in his behavior, he was suggesting that. And uh, we need to be careful how we judge Peter. Uh, Peter loved the Lord Jesus. He died for the Lord Jesus. And yet, Peter had a moment of weakness here as we are prone to have as well. How many times did I fail to stand up for the truth of the gospel because of fear of man? So Peter here too has slipped and Paul is correcting him. But Peter's faith was squarely in the grace of the Lord Jesus, not in keeping the law. He knew keeping the law would never make him right with God because he couldn't keep the law. Uh, next, we have here a rejection of the need to keep the law in order to be holy. Uh, verse 17 seems at first to be out of context. Peter says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin. I asked this as a bonus question in the homework because I knew it was kind of a hard question. Uh, and I looked at several commentaries before I decided which commentary I agree with. So it's okay uh, if, if you uh, were struggling a little bit, but what is it that people might use to accuse Jesus of being a minister of sin? Why would anybody accuse Jesus of being a minister of sin? All right, so one possibility would be <clears throat> someone pointing at what the Apostle Peter could be doing and other believers in Jesus. In obedience to Jesus, they would have fellowship with the Gentiles. Well, to a law-abiding Jew, he would say, you are sinning and you say, I am obeying the Lord Jesus, they will then say, Jesus, therefore, is a minister of sin. Right? That would be their accusation. Now, is it true that Jesus is a minister of sin? How would you answer that challenge, that accusation? Paul says in this passage, certainly not, but he doesn't explain why the Lord Jesus, how you would answer this question, so I'm going to borrow a couple of verses later on in Galatians because I think Paul does address this issue later in Galatians. The first one, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, he says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So... The law had its value, principally it had its value in bringing people to faith in Christ. But when a person becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus, we are told, 
we no longer need that help. We are no longer under the law, right? Now, there's a number of reasons given in Galatians and elsewhere why we're not under the law. But at the very least, you could recognize sometime you need help to get to a certain point, but once you reach it, you no longer need that particular help. The Jews needed this prohibition at uh, joining uh, the Gentiles, perhaps, getting married to Gentiles, um, uh, going to uh, Gentile idolatrous feasts. But now, that restriction is no longer in place. God was fearing for the Jews. He knew how prone their heart was to leave him, to forsake him. But now that a believer uh, has the Holy Spirit, it's no longer the concern that God has. God has put, really, the power of the law in us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us a desire to do those things that please God, and therefore we don't need an external law telling us what to do, because we have now the desires to do the things that please God uh, internally. And that's really the second verse I was going to take us to, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be mentioned quite a few times uh, starting in chapter 3. This is one of them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So as long as we are living by the Spirit and we're living out the fruits of the Spirit, which is really the character of God, we don't need an external law to tell us what to do. Now, we could back what is being said here with history, right? Is it true, if we look back at history, that Jesus was a minister of sin? Or can we look back at history and say the very opposite, that the Lord Jesus resulted uh, in holy lives being lived to the glory of God? And the answer is, uh, the Lord Jesus, when, uh, when the Lord Jesus saves someone, uh, their life is changed. I know my life has changed. Before I became a believer, uh, I was uh, involved in uh, a raucous uh, uh, college parties in which uh, many things were done that are against the law of God. Uh, in my personal life, privately, I was doing things that were not pleasing to God. And when God saved me, all of a sudden I had no desire to do those things and a desire to do the things that pleased God. Instead, my life was changed. Julian, the apostate, was a Roman emperor a couple of hundred years after Christ. And uh, he hated the Christians, and he wanted to abolish Christianity from the Roman Empire. And uh, he looked, what was it that was making Christianity so successful? Why are people forsaking the pagan gods of Rome and following uh, this uh, pale Galilean instead? And uh, he recognized that they, the Christian was supporting not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Uh, people in the empire would look at the pagans' priests, and uh, they said, these people do nothing for us, right? We bring them the sacrifice, we bring them money, we go and we worship in the temples, and uh, these people look at us as if we're dirt. And when we suffer in our poverty, they lift us not a finger. But look at these Christians. They love one another. And when there's poor people among the Christians, the Christians help them out. And you know what? They go outside of it, and they even help pagan pools that are not Christians and not worshiping the Christian love. God, they will extend love to them as well. The Christians were living lives of love because the Holy Spirit was inside of them. The Holy Spirit change their lives. Uh, during that time, there were plagues. And uh, 
Uh, there's a report about uh, cities that were deserted in the plagues, and uh, uh, a person who was writing at the time says, all day long, some of them, that is the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. So as these people were afflicted by the plague, their relatives fled. The relatives wanted uh, nothing to do with their own uh, parents, children, brothers and sisters because they had the plague. And so they wanted to save themselves and they fled out of the city. Who was left in the city to take care of the dying? It was the Christians. Christians were taking care not just of their own sick and dying, but also of the sick and dying of the pagans. In uh, our culture, when you are pregnant with a child, they would often have uh, scans, um, ultrasound and others on the unborn uh, child, and they might diagnose uh, deformity in your child. And uh, it's very common these days that people will have an abortion and kill the unborn child. In Roman times, they didn't have these tools. They couldn't do a scan, but when the child was born with a deformity, the parents would frequently uh, dispose of the child, literally throw him, the child, him or her, the child outside in the garbage heaps outside of the city. The Christians would go out to those garbage heaps looking for babies, unwanted babies that were thrown out. And uh, if they found the child alive, they would uh, take care of the child and raise the child as their own. If the child died, which isn't too unlikely because of the uh, physical deformities they had or perhaps from being neglected for so long, uh, they would uh, provide burial. And even the dead children they would take out and bury instead of leaving them in the garbage heaps. That was the evidence of the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was not a minister of sin. He was a minister of love. In modern times, we could look at people like uh, William Wilberforce, who uh, led the movement to end slavery in the British Empire and effectively ended uh, slavery altogether because the British ruled the seas. Once the British ended slavery, it was over. Shipping of slaves from Africa, at least, was over. It took some time till uh, countries that already had slaves abolished it. But the traffic of slavery ended because of believers in the Lord Jesus, like William Wilberforce, that recognized the evil of it. Uh, William Booth, General William Booth, was a leader uh, that started... Um, Help me, Salvation Army, Salvation Army. And he started it because he saw the poor people suffering in the slums of England and said, something must be done. I can't just preach the gospel to them and ha not help them. And he started a whole army of people who went into the whole world, not just trying to minister to people's spiritual needs, but their physical needs as well. A lot of the things we have today, the social services we have to take care of poor people to provide for orphans were really the result of the Salvation Army as they brought these issues up to government. And government could see the benefit to society as a whole that was being brought up by this huge work that was carried out by the early days of the Salvation Army. So Jesus is not a minister of sin. He was uh, a force that changed, <coughs> changed the world for good, we understand primarily Jesus came to save people's souls. But the impact of believers in the Lord Jesus is evident in history. He was not a minister of sin. Finally, Paul says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So my question to you in the homework assignment what things do we destroy when we become believers in the Lord Jesus? 
<clears throat> okay, good. Yeah, there's no, no more difference between Jew and Gentile. Paul will make that clear also later in Galatians. That's good. Any, any other ones? The law. We destroyed the law. That, that's good. That's good, yeah. We, what we destroy really is our confidence in the law. Let me show you the next slide here. Uh, no. Am I missing? There you go. Right. So before we were believers in the Lord Jesus. Now, granted, some of us, including myself, I was an atheist. So I could care, I cared nothing about heaven. Right? I wasn't concerned about how I'd get into heaven because I didn't believe there was a heaven. But that wasn't the case with uh, the Apostle Peter and, and the Judaizers. Uh, they believed in heaven. They believed that after they died, they would have to give an account to God. And uh, they wanted to go to heaven. And they counted on the fact that God would let them into heaven based on the keeping of God's law. And that's why they tried to keep God's law, to get into heaven. But then they got a better ticket. Now they were counting on getting into heaven based on Christ dying on the cross for their sins. That's what they were counting on. What do you do with the old ticket? You rip it up. I don't need this anymore. <laughs> I don't have to keep the law of God to get to heaven because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's what I'm counting on. Now what Peter is appearing to do in this passage is he getting some uh, tape and he's trying to fix the old ticket, right? He's trying to build it up again and show it to the, uh, the other Jews or Judaizers and saying, no, I am keeping the law of God. I still have my ticket, right? Based on my own keeping of God's law. And what Paul is pointing out here, if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Why does it make me a transgressor when I'm here taping up my ticket again of, of getting into heaven based on my works? Why would that make me a transgressor? What? Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, what, what I'm doing with uh, patching up my old ticket, what I'm saying is I'm not sure the other one will get me there. Right? I'll, I'll keep both tickets in my pocket. And I'll try the first one, and if it doesn't work, I'll try my second ticket. But Christ died for our sins. And uh, to try to patch up the old ticket is telling Jesus, you didn't do enough, right? Or the check that you gave me, I'm not sure it's good to the bank, right? And so I'm going to try to clean myself up and uh, make sure that I am acceptable on my own merits, uh, just in case, just in case what you did for me wasn't enough. What, what uh, application can we take from this uh, passage? Uh, now we can go to the next slide. Uh, this, as uh, you may be able to tell, is a check, right? This uh, was a check for $25 million. $25 million. The United States was giving uh, the country or the kingdom of Denmark in return for the West Indies. The West Indies used to belong to Denmark. Uh, the United States wanted it. They uh, negotiated with uh, Denmark, and Denmark agreed to sell it to the United States for $25 million. What did the government of the United States do? They wrote a check, right? And they handed it to the ambassador of Denmark, a check for $25 million. Now, before they wrote the check, now the check says that it's payable in gold, right? So what they're saying to the government of Denmark, you can go to our bank, and the bank will give you the $25 million in gold, because we understand you may not be satisfied with a piece of paper, right? But we can't give you 
You know, they couldn't hand to the ambassador. Uh, they didn't want to hand the ambassador $25 million in gold. And so they just gave him a check. But before they gave the check, they confirmed that the bank had $25 million in gold. They called the bank office and they said, do you have $25 million in gold? He sent his, uh, his uh, officer to go count the gold in the safe and he reported, yes, we have $25 million in gold. The check is good, right? We, have, we can back this check. Uh, this uh, is not different from what God did for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are ambassadors for Christ. We go and we share the gospel with people. We tell them Jesus uh, died for your sins. God is offering you uh, salvation uh, through faith. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and you can uh, be assured of a place in heaven. Before God sent this gospel, he made sure that the payment was made in full. That's what it means in verse 21. He says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus on the cross took your sins and my sins into himself. When he died on the cross, he paid for your sins and for my sins in full. The uh, money is in the bank. Brothers and sisters, or you who do not know the Lord yet, uh, you can take the check, the offer of salvation, to the bank of heaven, and you will find that the payment was made in full for you and for me. So if you haven't yet done so, I appeal to you this morning to do so. Take the check of the gospel to the bank. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we <clears throat> thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ loving us and coming to save us from our sins. We thank you that the payment was made in full so we can fully trust in you for your salvation. We pray here for anyone who has not yet placed their faith in you, that you help them do so and that you help them do so today. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.